Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here today. I'm really grateful to see each one of you. Uh, if you remember, try to remember, way back in December 2015, uh, we began then a, our study of the book of Luke. We started in Luke 1, verse 1, way, way back then. And since that time, with a whole lot of breaks in between, we have been systematically working through the entire book of the Gospel of Luke. So today, we sixth and final series in the Gospel of Luke, and this tells the story of Jesus, beginning in chapter 17, when he makes his way towards Jerusalem, where he knows that he will be eventually betrayed, arrested, tortured, and crucified. And so it's fitting that as we begin this season of Lent together in just a couple of weeks that we would be following this journey with Jesus. We're calling this series uh, The Revolution of the King. And of course, a revolution is a political overthrow. It is a major change in a social political order. And the way Luke is telling this story is he's not telling the story about Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is this great teacher who's giving us lots of new good advice to apply to our personal lives. That Luke actually thinks and believes, as do many of us, that through the life and the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus, God is actually bringing about a revolution into the whole order of things in creation. That God is bringing about a new social political order called the kingdom of God. And that this kingdom of God is coming and it will come with glory and peace and power. And you are invited to be a part of it through Jesus. So uh, turn with me to Luke 17. Uh, we'll begin here with verses 1 through 10. I got to admit, this is a really tough passage. I really struggled with it this week. Asked for help from many of you, actually. And so um, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us, help me, help all of us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that you, in your providence, preserved this story that, that Luke wrote. That is the true story of Jesus and his teaching and his life and death and resurrection. Thank you that you inspired it by the power of the Spirit. And we pray that that same Spirit would inspire me and all of us today so that we would not just hear these words of Jesus, but take them seriously and even be changed by them and ultimately respond to them with obedience and with love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear God's word, friends, from Luke 17, 1 through 10. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you in love. Hear it now. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after some sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down to eat? No, won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? No, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. 
We have only done our duty. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. June 17th, 2015, a dozen church members gathered for a Wednesday night Bible study as they did every week at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And they gathered there together and a young white man came in unknown to any of them and they opened their arms and welcomed him and he sat there among them. And he sat there with them in that Bible study throughout the entirety of the study. And at the very end, they bowed their heads to pray. And in that moment, he pulled out a handgun and he began shooting. And he killed nine of the 12 that were sitting in that room there that night. The next day, Dylan Roof, the young white supremacist, was arrested. And the day after that was his bond hearing. And many of the family members of those who were killed actually attended his bond hearing. And they were given the opportunity to speak to this man that was accused of murdering their families. One after another after another stood and said things like this to him. I will never talk to my mother again. I will never hold my baby again. I will never feel the hand of my father again. And yet, I forgive you. May God have mercy on your souls. And I forgive you. If you remember, this kind of went viral. I mean, and and, and the reactions were were very wide, varying from celebration to to anger that they would supposedly excuse this man and show mercy to him in his wrongdoing. But no matter what anyone's reaction was, the common theme was astonishment because people just do not say and do such things in a world like ours. I forgive you. What we see there, friends, is we see the occasional time when forgiveness done as it is meant to be done can actually become a revolutionary act. That forgiveness in this way is is this forceful act of resistance over and against the vengeful ways of the world. And that's what we see in this text, in these verses. Jesus calls his followers to forgive. And he's not just calling them to forgive occasionally. He is calling them to a lifestyle of perpetual forgiveness. He is calling them to become a community of forgiveness. And we see here from the words of Jesus that forgiveness, according to him, is not some weak act of passivity for pushovers and pacifists, but that forgiveness is a powerful act of resistance over and against the hatred and the brutality of the world. He's calling us to that kind of powerful action. Forgive. So let's just look at a few dimensions of forgiveness that Jesus touches on in these very powerful words that he speaks here. First, we'll see the necessity of forgiveness, why he says it's so important. Second, we're going to see the practice of it, just how he tells us to do it. And then finally, the power for it, how we actually get the strength that we need to do it. So let's look at these three things together. First, the necessity of forgiveness. Look with me at the text. I'll just start there in verse one. The commentators that I read this week all say that though this phrase sounds a bit cryptic, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, that Jesus is indeed here speaking about the nature of his community, the nature of his future Christian community that will fundamentally, according to Jesus, be, he sees so well, a flawed community, a deeply flawed community. It will be a group of people in which, in other words, there will be plenty of opportunities to put this 
command about forgiveness into practice. See, a lot, this is really good because a lot of Christians think that if you are a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit and you are in relationship with other Christians who are also filled with the Holy Spirit, then if things are going as they should be, then you will have wonderful, beautiful, conflict-free relationships. Any of y'all think that? Let me relieve you of that myth. Almost every month, friends, almost every month, sometimes almost every week, I meet with someone from our church who is distressed about a conflict, either a conflict in a marriage, conflict in a friendship, conflict in a ministry in the church. And what I'm always surprised at is their surprise. They're always like, what's wrong? Did I marry the wrong person? Did I join the wrong church? Did I get the wrong job? But look, Jesus says right here, things that will cause people to stumble are bound to come. They are inevitable. In fact, let me say it this way. As long as you are a human, and I think all of you are, as long as there are genuine differences between people, as long as there is a vestige of sin within your heart and the other, as long as you are not living in the new creation kingdom of God, then you will have conflict in relationships. In fact, that's okay. In fact, any relationship that is worth having has conflict. If you are in a relationship and is there, there is no pain and no hurt and no conflict, let me suggest to you, it's not a relationship, it's an acquaintance. You hear me on that? In fact, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if you don't want pain or conflict, love no one. Love nothing. Don't give your heart to anyone, even an animal. Avoid all entanglements. Lock up your heart safe and motionless in the casket of your own selfishness. And there, your heart will be safe. It will not break, and it will die. Try that. What we see here is that Jesus is teaching us the, about the inevitability of... He's not warning us about relationships. He's warning us about how you respond to pain in relationships. You see that? You have the potential, he says, to do things in response to pain that are so destructive that it might even be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Yowzers, right? <laughs> so he warns us. Look at verse 3. Watch yourselves. So interesting that Jesus says this. Watch yourselves. What is the first thing that you want to do when someone wrongs you? Blame. Point the finger. Look at them, right? But yet Jesus says, no, when someone hurts you, wrongs you, mistreats you, snubs you, what you must immediately do is watch yourself. Look at yourself. In fact, the word literally is pay attention to yourself and what's going on in your own soul. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. I love this verse from Hebrews 12. He says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may defile you. What an image, a root of bitterness. You know, I I discovered this thing when I moved to Virginia called Virginia vine, as the locals say. Creeper, you know. Uh, And I had all this stuff in my vine. And I actually went to Abe here. Do you remember this, Abe? And I said, Abe, how do I get rid of this stuff? And he told me how to get rid of it. He said, you got to snip it at the roots and all this. So I did all this, and my yard looked beautiful. It looked glorious. I planted yard seed. I planted grass seed. Three months later, hello, Virginia Vine. (laughs) Here in full glory. (laughs) Right? And this is what the Bible says happens with anger, is that you never really admit how mad you are. You never really admit how upset you are. And so that anger stays there in your heart like a root system deep below the surface of your heart. And it begins 
to defile you. It begins to distort you and become a great source of destruction in your life. A mentor of mine shared this with me, which I think is remarkable. He says that the, that the word wrath, W-R-A-T-H, wrath, comes from the same Anglo-Saxon root from which we also get the word wreath. Now, why would that be? Wrath and wreath, because the same root is twist, twisted. That just as you take a group of vines and twist them into a wreath, so wrath in the heart, unattended, begins to twist the soul. It's like that phrase in that great old movie, Last of Mohicans, uh, Magua's heart is so twisted by hate, he has become like that which twisted him. And get this, not only does the same root of wrath and wreath, it is also the same root of the word wraith. And do you know what a wraith is? Do you remember Lord of the Rings? Do you remember? I remember my children running, screaming from the room in the scene of the ring wraiths. The ring wraiths, the wraiths are the spirits that cannot rest. Wraiths are tormented souls that cannot escape their past and roam the earth. In other words, if you have wrath in your life that is unattended, it will twist you like a wreath and turn you into a wraith. How you like that? Scary, yes, but so true. I mean, just, just think about something in your own life. You know, your parents have, you know, did something to you. You, ref- you can't forgive your parents. You think that you're free of your parents. What happens? They end up twisting and distorting. You have a problem with all authority figures in your life. You have, you, you are, you have, a, you have an unhealthy relationship with your own children because you are reacting towards them against what your own parents did to you. You have become twisted. You are slowly becoming a wraith. Watch yourselves, Jesus says. See, some of you are thinking right now, oh, man, I can't wait to send this sermon to Susie or to Frank, right? Whatever. But y'all, listen, Jesus is talking to you. He is talking to you. He is saying, watch yourself. Yes, even you, little Eleanor. Yeah, your little heart. Watch yourselves. The opportunities for conflict will be many. They are bound to come. What are you going to do when they happen? And so this is why it's so necessary. And this is actually what was fundamentally misunderstood about what those Charleston families were doing. They were not excusing the wrongdoing. They were setting themselves free from the wrath within them. See that? That's the necessity of forgiveness. So second, what about the practice of forgiveness? How do we actually do it? How do you keep yourself from turning it into a wraith, as I know you all want to do? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus gives some actually very practical guidance. And I just want to acknowledge that I am relying heavily on Margie Satterfield, who helped me, Ken Sandy, um, Tim Keller, who has done great teaching on forgiveness. just want to rely that none of these are my ideas, okay? This is all from Jesus and from these saints who are wiser than I. So the first thing that we see is that we must identify with the other. Notice that Jesus says here, if your brother or sister sins against you. Now, I want you, don't want you to zoom by that too fast. Note that Jesus does not say, if that guy who used to be your brother sins against you. If she repents, then treat her as a sister again. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He's your brother. The one who sinned against you, your brother. The one who hurt you, wronged you, your sister. A sister who sins against you is still your sister. A brother who sins against you is still your brother. This is important because when we are wronged by another, what we want to do is dehumanize them. We want to 
to uh, separate ourselves from them, differentiate ourselves, see how different they are from myself. It's kind of like what political cartoonists do in their caricatures of politicians. They take one sort of funny, larger than your ears are slightly larger, your nose or your hair or whatever, and so they, they take that that feature, and they distort it in a one-dimensional way to make that person entirely that rueful feature. And this is what we do when we get hurt. That person's behavior becomes who they are. It's not just that he did something unthoughtful. He is a jerk. It's not just that she lied. She is a liar. Now, when you lie, you're not a liar because you're just complex, Right? <laughs> You know, when I, when I do something unthoughtful, I'm not a jerk. I'm, I'm just a very, you know, I just have a complicated soul where I have all sorts of good and bad, you know, mixed within me, of course, right? But not when another does it against me. We justify our own souls. We say, I never would do something like that in the way this person treated me. Jesus says, not so fast. This is your brother. You might not do something exactly like that because your personality and your struggles and your idols are different. But you do things just as bad. Your heart is the same. You're in the same family. This is your brother. She's your sister. Made in the image of God, marred by the curse of sin, just like you. I love what Miroslav Volf says. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But there you are, friends. Jesus says, don't do it. When someone wrongs you, identify with the person. In another place, Matthew 7 He says, before you look at the speck in your brother's eye, look at your own first, and you very well may find a log in there and see your own contribution to the pain. And so identify with them. See your brother. See your sister. See your own capacity and contribution to the sin. That's the first step. Second, though, he says, go to the other. Verse 3, he says, rebuke them. Now, that word rebuke has negative connotations for us, but this is the positive side of this, is that he's actually telling you to go to the person to tell them how they hurt you, to confront them and to name the offense, to identify the wrongdoing, to seek restoration in the relationship. Now, this is not our natural tendency. Always, almost always, in the face of conflict, when you've been wounded or hurt, you will do one of two things. This is from what Ken Sandy says in his book, Peacemaking. You will either escape or attack. Escape can look everything like withdrawing, giving someone the cold shoulder, Uh, gossiping, I'm sorry, not gossiping, but pretending like nothing happened, suppressing your anger, Um, maybe uh, doing something more dramatic like quitting a job or changing churches or uh, filing divorce papers, you know, all just to get out, to withdraw, to escape from having to deal with the conflict, right? Others of us are tend towards attack, and that can look things like things like gossip, or slandering the person, or getting on social media and sort of marring their name or whatever. And it could escalate into things like suing them or physically hurting them or even something worse. So we're all, depending on our personalities, depending on the context, we all sort of fall on the spectrum. When we get hurt, we either escape or attack. Do you see this in yourself? Should we have a vote? Who, who Who tends to escape? Me. Who tends to attack? Me. See, I'm so nuanced, I'm both, right? Come on, y'all. Let's be honest with each other. About half of you didn't even raise your hands. Give me a break. We are all different, right? We tend, we, 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 but at root, these responses are the same because they are selfish. They're not about God. They're not about God's glory. 
They're not about the restoration of the relationship. They are about the gratification of the intense needs of the self, either to avoid pain or gain personal justice, whatever it may be. And Jesus says, that's not what my people do. My people don't do that. My people don't attack. My people don't escape. My people go. They go to the offender. They move toward them in love. Everything that you want to do is to gratify the self-centered desires. And Jesus says instead, no, move towards them. Rebuke, correct. Tell them what they did to to you. And if you have done that critical first step of identifying with the sin and the wrongdoer, of seeing the log in your own eye, then there's a very good chance that you will be able to go to that person, not to wound them, not to hurt them, not to make them pay, but to actually see God's grace restored in them, to see the relationship restored. So go to the other. And then finally, Jesus says, forgive the other. Now, what does it mean to forgive? This is actually really important because I think there's a lot of confusion about this. Let's be clear of what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not excusing the wrongdoing. This is what people misunderstood when they saw those Charleston families doing this. It is not excusing the wrongdoing, saying, oh, it was no big deal. No, actually, to forgive is the opposite of excusing because you are naming the offense and putting it before the eyes of the other, right? So it's not excusing. It's not forgetting. It's not saying, oh, you know, I won't remember it anymore. Of course you will. So it's, it, it, you, might, you might forget it over time, but it's, it's not the same as forgetting. It's also not the same as reconciliation. You might need to forgive someone that, frankly, you should not be in relationship with because perhaps they were an abuser. You might need to forgive someone that you can't be in relationship with because they're dead and it's no longer possible to be in relationship with. So if, if, if those things aren't forgiveness, then what is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's a decision of the will. Jesus commands us to forgive. Seven times he says, it is not a feeling, it is not a subjective emotion that you wait for, that you hope one day you feel. No, it is a command. Jesus says, forgive. He uses an economic word, FMI, which means cancel the debt. To forgive is to make a decision you will not make the other person pay for what they've done to you. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A hurt or an offense creates a debt that someone has to pay, right? If someone's in your house and they're, you know, waving their arm or something and they break a lamp, a $50 lamp, there's two ways to handle that. You can say, hey, pay up 50 bucks, buddy. That's my lamp. You can make them pay. Or you could say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just buy a new lamp. And then you pay for the lost lamp. But either way, somebody is paying for it. Even if you decide not to replace the lamp, you are still absorbing the cost of a diminished amount of light in your house. You see? You're all, the offense created a debt that somebody's got to pay. And it's the same thing when someone hurts you. When someone wrongs you, there's a sense that something is owed, that an injustice has been had, that something has been violated. And in this case, the currency is not money. It is pain. Who will absorb the pain of the debt? What we want to do, what do you want to do? Make the other person pay. And how do we do that? Oh my goodness, we have so many creative ways to do that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You can do it by by, vengeful thoughts and by rehearsing the offense in your mind like a never repeat, ever repeating YouTube video. You can... Uh, you, you can root for their demise. You can gossip about them. You can hope that something happens to them that hurts you, them just as much as it hurts you. You can refuse to speak to them. You can give them the cold shoulder. There are so many, and we get perverse pleasure in such things. It actually gives you a sense of satisfaction 
to make them pay. You know, I, 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 even, we would even be in a situation in which you, you are rooting for the other person's hurt and they actually, something tragic does happen to them and guess what? You begin to feel your own resentment diminish. Why? Because they are paying back the debt of pain. That's sick, y'all, and that's me. So what's the alternative? If you don't make the other person pay, who pays? You. You absorb the cost of the offense. You make a decision that you will not make them pay and you will pay for it yourself. How do you do that? Well, by stop rehearsing the offense, by, root, by not rooting for their demise, by refusing vengeful thoughts, by refusing to talk or gossip about them, uh, by speaking kindly to them when you want to smear them, by rooting for their good and praying for their best rather than hoping for their demise. Is that easy? Of course not. In fact, it hurts. Do you know how much it hurts When someone has hurt you and you want to think vengeful thoughts about them and you choose to pray for them instead, you actually feel physical and emotional pain. Why? Because it's the suffering of love, friends. You're bearing the cost of that person's sin as Jesus has done for you. Why would I ever want to do that, you might say? Because Jesus commanded it. And more so, he commanded it not because he's trying to mess with you, because he loves you and he doesn't want you to turn into a wraith. I love this uh, sentence from Lewis Smeets. Refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. I mean, that makes no sense, but yet we do it every day. And so what's the counter to that? To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. This is what Jesus wants to do in you. He wants to set you free, friends. So, Identify with the other, go to the other, forgive the other. Okay? Go do that. Ready? Go. No. See, see, so Jesus says all this to the disciples, and they are mind blown, right? They're like, verse 5, increase our faith. How can we do this? There is no way, Jesus. They cry out to him. And Jesus says to them, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus is using very poetic language to say, look, guys, you've got everything you need to do this already. And it's not the amount of your faith. It's who your faith is in. In relationship with me, putting your faith in me, you have the power to forgive. How does that work? Two simple things I think we see here. First of all, see that Jesus is the master and you're not. See that Jesus is the judge and you are not. The story that Jesus tells in verses 7 through 10, the basic gist of the story is, remember your place, friends. You're a servant. You're not the master. When when you refuse to forgive, you behave like a master who knows everything, who is in charge, who sees the whole picture, who knows how justice can be meted out. When you refuse to forgive, you are essentially taking the place of the judge, saying, I know what this person deserves, and I know how to make them pay for it. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're, you're a servant acting like a master. Instead, remember your place and take your case and put it into the hands of the judge. Put it into the hands of the one who is in charge and who will ultimately meet out ultimate justice. And then you do what servants are called to do, and that is to forgive. So that's the first thing, is that you, you see that you're the servant, not the master. And then secondly, and this is beautiful, see the master that became a servant. See that the one who instructed these words to you about forgiveness is the master, the judge, who allowed himself to be judged in our place. 
That this same Jesus who is saying, remember your place, took our place. That, the, that, that we are servants who behave like we're masters, and he's the master who became the servant. That this enormous debt because of our sin and rebellion stood between us and God, and total unpayable debt. And Jesus willingly absorbed the pain, took the cost of our offenses, and wiped the slate clean, wiped the ledger clean. A clear name you have now through Christ before the Father. And I pray that even some of you might receive that clear name, even today. And that is the power of forgiveness. To see and also experience through the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus that his very life now is in you. Through him, you have the power to forgive. I love the story of Corey ten Boom, who suffered in the concentration camps in World War II and as a young woman was humiliated, utterly humiliated by the guards, exposed, even degraded by them. And, and, and she survived. And later, um, after the war, she, she was a preacher and she began to preach messages, especially around Europe, as people struggled to know how to get through everything that happened in the war. And she began to preach on forgiveness. She preached a message wide and far about forgiveness. And one particular Sunday morning, she was preaching in Munich. And after the service, a man approached and extended his hand, and he said, Fräulein, it is truly beautiful that Jesus forgives all of our sin, just as you say. And she looked up in, in, his, fa- in his face, and she recognized him. Here was an SS guard who abused her, who took advantage of her. And she felt her whole heart go cold. She got stiff. She could not raise her hand. She felt like exploding emotionally inside. And in that moment, she writes, I cried out, Lord, forgive me. I cannot forgive him. And in that moment of her desperation and confession to God, she knew she was forgiven. And her heart melted, and and she was able not to embrace him, but to reach out her hand and shake him and to set him free from the debt that he owed her. Friends, the only ones who can forgive are the ones they know are truly forgiven. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. So let me sum up. Jesus is calling his people into a lifestyle of continual, perpetual forgiveness. Friends, there's a great necessity for it, for the healing of your own souls. Jesus does not want you to be a wraith. He's telling you how to do it. Identify with the wrongdoer. Take the log out of your own eye. Go to the person. Release them from the debt that they owe you. Stop punishing them in your soul. Entrust them over to God. And finally, the power is your own relationship with Jesus. Remembering that Jesus alone is the judge and you are not. And that that same judge has been judged in your place to forgive you. Friends, our world needs this. My God, the world needs this. The narrative of our world in everything from the political environment we are living in to the box office blockbusters every week is the narrative of vengeance. Tit for tat. Make them pay. No wonder we are in a world that is haunted by wraiths all around us. And Jesus calls his community to something different. He calls us to this powerful act of resistance against the brutality and hatred of the world and to take into our hands, as those families in Charleston did, to take into our hands as 
All in the best moments of Christian history, Christians have done these powerful weapons of forgiveness and non-retaliation. And we do so, when we do so, we are in the image of our forgiving Lord. May we forgive as we are forgiven. Let us pray. Just invite you maybe to picture in your mind right now someone that you think that God may be calling you to forgive. Will you just picture their face in your mind? It might be someone who is long gone. It might be someone who is sitting next to you. It might be the man in the pulpit. I don't know. But who is it that God is calling you to forgive? What may God be calling you to do? How might you need to obey Jesus? Thank you, uh, Father, that as Augustine said, you not only command us to things, but then you fulfill the command yourself. And that you have fulfilled the command to forgive by taking on our own debt in our place. We pray now that through the power of Jesus living in us, that we could take on this revolutionary act of forgiveness. We will have many opportunities, even this week, because as Jesus said, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. And we pray that when they come this week, uh, we would not be those who give into selfishness and escape and withdrawal and all the things that we want to do, but that we would instead be those who love, who love as Jesus loved us, who go to our brother, to go to our sister, who identify with them, who see our own contribution, and who ultimately release from debt and entrust it into your hands instead. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.